guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Listening more specifically to an episode that might not be for everybody. What I'm telling myself is that what I'm doing now is a public service, but really what I'm doing is just trying to make the recording that my 16-year-old self really could have benefited from, which is I'm going to explain the symbols, metaphors, and motifs from the first chapter of The Great Gatsby. And in order to do that... I'm going to read aloud the first chapter of The Great Gatsby, but welcome to Caveat the Podcast. I'm not just reading from The Great Gatsby, the official text of it. I'm reading from my own copy of Great Gatsby, which I'm calling the research copy of Great Gatsby, because as I have mentioned, for the past eight months, I've been working on a book called Cuba Tooth, which has in it certain very integral connections to The Great Gatsby. So when I tell you I'm reading out from my research edition of The Great Gatsby, what I mean is I am reading to you from the edition out of which I have annotated the fuck. Every line, pretty much, has some piece of commentary. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to be reading the chapter aloud and I'm going to be, to what is surely your surprise, interrupting it constantly to point out how the narrator, Nick Carraway, is not to be trusted at all, and hopefully to illustrate how the ending of the book, all the major themes of the book, are buried in seed form in the first chapter. I suspect this podcast is in the habit of putting many people to sleep. I know my mom falls asleep listening to it, so I think it's only appropriate that I finally crack open a book and just fucking read to you. Here we go. The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Now, before getting into the main text, I think it's important to read the, f- the very last line of the book, which I know for some people is fucking sacrilegious. It's anathema to jump to the ending and re- like have things spoiled. First of all, the last line of The Great Gatsby doesn't spoil anything. And because we are now 100 in 2024, we will be 100 years removed. From The Great Gatsby, it is still relatable, but... Okay, there's two things to keep in mind. First of all, it was written in the 1920s. Shit was different. Human beings were the same, it's still very relatable, it's still very vivid. But the the world in which the book takes place, and the readership to which the book was sort of selling itself, were both very different. Also, the second thing, it was written by someone in his 20s. And yes, F. Scott Fitzgerald was a very, very gifted writer, might have been a kind of stylistic genius in terms of he just had this, like, preternatural ability to understand the form. But he's still prone to juvenile shit. And I think that needs to be mentioned when you're trying to teach this book to people, to especially to teenagers who don't have that much reading behind them in the relatively short life that they have lived up to now. You're flogging them with this book, which is so foreign. The world of it is so foreign, and you're telling them it's a, not only a masterpiece, but the great American novel. If you're going to do that, if you want them to approach it like some fucking literary monolith, you have to give them some context. So here's the last line of the book, and it's going to give you some context for the metaphors and the symbols that pop up later. So we beat on, 
boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Now the reason that's important is because it brings up two major issues, two major themes, two major images. The first one, the most probably pronounced one, is the past. Also, there is an irony in the fact that he uses the word the past as the last word of the book. Even though the word past, it suggests the beginning of something or something way before that. So that is very strategic. Also, he he, defi he, he describes us, the reader, the, the, the cast of characters as boats traveling on the ocean, on the sea, going somewhere and never getting to that destination because we are borne back and back ceaselessly by the past. And one of the most famous images in all of literature, which is presented to us at the very end of the first chapter, is the image of Jay Gatsby standing on the end of his dock over the dark water and reaching his arms out toward a green light. And people have often speculated, what is the significance of the green light? Does it represent money? Does it represent business or industry? But fuck that. As Maureen Corrigan points out in her book about the Great Gatsby, which is magnificent, called So We Read On, the significance of that image of Jay Gatsby, sort of the self-made American millionaire reaching out toward the green light, the green light is not what matters. What matters is the image of, of, of a very rich man reaching for it. Reaching for it and never achieving it. So here we go, Great Gatsby. We're starting not from page one, but from the fucking title page because the epigram is important too. The Great Gatsby. And then it doesn't say by F. Scott Fitzgerald. There's an epigraph underneath it. The epigraph says, Then wear the gold hat if that will move her. If you can bounce high, bounce for her too till she cry, lover, gold-hatted, high-bouncing lover, I must have you. That quote is supposed to be Jay Gatsby. Jay Gatsby was in love with the female lead of the story, uh, Daisy Buchanan, but when they fell in love when they were younger, Daisy Buchanan was very, very wealthy, and there was just a, 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 a chasm of, of status between them. Jay Gatsby came from humble means, and so Daisy Buchanan just couldn't go off with him. But now let's go to the dedication. The dedication says, once again, to Zelda. F. Scott Fitzgerald here is writing a novel about a man who wants to win the hand of his boyhood major romance, but he can't get her attention until he becomes rich. And that's what this book is about. It's about him having gotten rich, coming back to get her, but kind of the same thing happened to F. Scott Fitzgerald with Zelda Fitzgerald, whose maiden name was Sayre, S-A-I-R-E. F. Scott Fitzgerald fell crazy in love with Zelda Sayre, and he said to her, I don't know if he was 19 or 20, but he was like, hey, I dig the shit out of you, will you marry me? And she said, no, not until you're really rich. Which sounds like a stuck-up, pompous thing to say, but Zelda Fitz... I keep saying Zelda Fitzgerald, whatever. We're gonna say Zelda Fitzgerald just because that's her most famous moniker. She was being hit on left and right, dudes were coming out of the woodwork and like fucking proposing to her, vying for her attention, vying for her time, and, as will happen to anybody in their social life, and as, as should happen to anyone in their professional life, she became very selective about the people on whom she lavished her attention and to whom she gave her time. And she said, basically, to Scott, like, I got a lot of opportunities, and if you want me to fucking tie myself down at basically the dawn of my adult life, you're gonna have to offer me something more than your pretty little face, which incidentally was a very pretty face. Everybody commented on how F. Scott Fitzgerald was just fucking beautiful. Hemingway might have been handsome, but Scott was pretty, and he had a real fucking chip on his shoulder about his prettiness. Anyways, the book says, once again, 
to Zelda. That is the dedication, and in that, you can choose, if you'd like, in the same way that we're going to choose a queer interpretation of a lot of this book, you can choose that to be some measure of passive aggression, of F. Scott Fitzgerald saying here, hey Zelda, remember that thing you did to me? Well, here's Jay Gatsby, let's do it again. And there's something sadomasochistic there because, yes, maybe he resents the fact that Zelda put him through that, you know, ultimatum. But this was, like, people marveled about this in their diaries and in letters to one another, that Scott and Zelda were a beautiful couple, they were hypnotic, they were incredibly fun, but they, they just abused the shit out of each other. It was the most, like, toxic impulsive, impetuous relationship you can imagine, which is part of why it's so romanticized and why young people think it's so fun, is because after Fitzgerald's first book, This Side of Paradise, the one that he wrote in an attempt to win Zelda Fitzgerald's attention, he got stupid rich after that. And then he wrote a collection of stories called The Jazz Age, got stupider rich. All right, chapter one. In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my head ever since. Whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. Now that's one of the most famous, like, openers in all of American literature, maybe in fucking world literature. There's a good beat to it, it's kind of clever, it's a nice little digestible piece of wisdom that if your teacher is presenting this book to you in a very superficial way, She's going to say, ah, you know why the great, it's the great American novel? It's because it's so wise. And he's saying, don't judge people, you know, that's, that's wise. That's not what this is about. So, first of all, our narrator is a dude named Nick Carraway. Nick Carraway is, at the time of the action of this book, he's 29 years old, and then we see his birthday, his 30th birthday, somewhere in the middle. But he's also just gotten back from World War I. Again, he says, In my younger and more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. Now, to turn something over, colloquially it means that you're contemplating it, you're, you're playing with it, you're chewing on it, you're studying the nuances. But another thing it might mean is you're inverting it turning it upside down, turning it on its head, you're doing the opposite. His dad says, hey, whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you've had. And then Nick goes on to say, he didn't say any more, but we've always been unusually communicative in a reserved way. And I understood that he meant a great deal more than that. Actually, Nick, we don't. Nick is telling us here with no evidence. He's saying, oh, my father and I, yeah, we communicated a lot. He didn't really talk to me, but that's that's fine because we, uh, we, communi we communicated without words. What Nick Carraway is revealing here is that he didn't have much of a relationship with his father. And that sounds probably like I'm jumping to conclusions, but consider the fact that he is opening his memoir, because this is a novel, but we're supposed to read it as, as his memoir. He's opening his memoir with a, a word of advice, a word of wisdom from his father. Obviously, that suggests that his father kind of loomed over him and he, he respected his father. Why then does his father not come up once, not one more time in the rest of this book? It's because his dad wasn't around or his dad didn't fucking talk to him. In consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened up many curious natures to me and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores. The abnormal mind is quick to detect and attach itself to this quality when it appears in a normal person. And so it came about that in college I was unjustly accused of being a politician because I was privy to the secret griefs of wild, unknown men. Now we're going to stop again. 
He says, because of this thing that my dad told me, you know, don't criticize people because they haven't been as lucky as you have. Nick says, oh, because my dad told me that I now, I never criticize anyone. I, and be, I'm so non-critical that now a bunch of veteran bores and abnormal minds are opening themselves up to me. So right away, in the fucking first page, Nick is saying like, oh, I had this really deep relationship with my father. Like, we didn't talk ever. He didn't talk to me. But he said this one thing to me one time, and I've been turning it over ever since. So he's revealing to us that, like, he's really needy. Also, that he's a fucking liar. Maybe not a liar, at least, or he's just, like, deluded. He's He really seems to believe that his relationship with his father was more profound than, than it really was. But then, later in the page, he says, because of my father's profound influence, I am not a critical person. And because I'm not critical, all these fucking losers are in love with me. You're not known to be a humble man, but I wonder. I think I am actually humble. I think I'm much more humble than you would understand. So he's contradicting himself there, but also consider the wording. He says, I've been privy to the secret griefs of wild, unknown men. Now, the secret griefs of wild, unknown men. An unknown man might presumably be a man who's in the closet, someone who's hiding his sexuality and therefore hiding an aspect of his identity. And if you're living in the closet, then you can fairly say, as many a queer memoir will attest, that even the people who know you better than anybody, they don't really know you. And this is what might be called a secret grief. He goes on to say, Most of the confidences were unsought. Frequently, I have feigned sleep, preoccupation, or a hostile levity, when I realized by some unmistakable sign that an intimate revelation was quivering on the horizon. For the intimate revelations of young men, or at least the terms in which they express them, are usually plagiaristic and marred by obvious suppressions. Now, apart from the fact that the word suppression appears there in a, in a fucking loaded way, let's point to the fact that he says, oh, I, you know, I hate when these fucking wild, unknown men reveal things to me. Frequently, I have feigned sleep when I realize some unmistakable sign that they're about to confess. If he is pretending to fall asleep in order to avoid the confessions, the sentimental confessions of these men, doesn't it kind of suggest that they're in bed together? You don't do that at a bar. Like, if you're at a bar with a friend and you think he's weird and he's about to confess, you don't just put your head on the bar and go to sleep. Maybe you do, in which, but I think that's something he would have mentioned. Hey, sometimes when we're at the bar, I put my head down on the counter until they leave. He then says the intimate revelations of young men, and he is young, he's 28, or at least the terms in which they express them are usually plagiaristic and marred by obvious suppressions. Marred by obvious suppressions. And this book, as you will know if you're looking at it, is very, very slim. It's, I don't even think it's 200 pages. Here he is, he's ostensibly presenting you with a memoir of one of the most formative encounters of his life. And it's, and this is a war hero, and he's presenting us with a memoir that's not even 200 pages. Obviously, he is suppressing something, like whether it's sexual, whether it's something about a trauma he incurred in the war. Anyways, this it sounds like I'm jumping to conclusions. I promise there's evidence to back these claims up, but all I'm trying to illustrate, and we're still on fucking page one, all I'm trying to illustrate is that he is establishing right at the beginning that he's not to be trusted about anything he says. Reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope. I am still a little afraid of missing something if I forget that, as my father snobbishly suggested. There he is again, being uncritical, and I snobbishly repeat. But there he is, both subverting his father's advice of, you know, don't criticize something, but also putting himself in the same category as his father, eagerly, hastily 
saying, oh, my father was a snob. So am I. So am I. I'm just like my dad. We were really, really close. He never spoke to me. As my father snobbishly suggested, and I snobbishly repeat, a sense of the fundamental decencies is parceled out unequally at birth. Parceled out unequally at birth. First of all, fucking decency is something you learn. It's not something you're born with. Also, it shows he's misinterpreting his father's words. His father said, people are not born with all the same advantages as you. And Nick interprets it to mean, oh yeah, not everyone was born to be as decent as me. He considers his decency an advantage, like a, like a birthright. And after boasting this way of my tolerance, I come to the admission that it has a limit. No shit, Nicholas, your tolerance has a limit. You, you told us at the outset of this chapter, you told us like 500 words ago, that you live by this dictum of your father's that you should never criticize anyone, and then you went on to talk about how, like, everyone you know is inferior. That they're all really fucking lame and try to confess things to you because they look up to you. It's kind of like that Trump interview. You're not known to be a humble man, but I wonder... I think I am actually humble. I think I'm much more humble than you would understand. Back to the Great Gatsby. Conduct may be founded on the hard rock or the wet marshes, but after a certain point, I don't care what it's founded on. When I came back from the East last autumn, I felt that I wanted the world to be in uniform and had a sort of moral attention forever. I wanted no more riotous excursions with privileged glimpses into the human heart. Only Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book, was exempted from my reaction. Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have an unaffected scorn. If personality is an unbroken series of successful gestures, then there was something gorgeous about him. Some heightened sensitivity to the promises of life. As if he were related to one of those intricate machines that register earthquakes 10,000 miles away. Make note of the fact that here, Nick Carraway is talking about how Great Gatsby is so sensitive. And when you say, oh, how sensitive is Gatsby? He says, mm, he's as sensitive as a machine. One of those machines that's sensitive. He doesn't say like, oh, a child. Because Nick, I don't know, is it sociopathy? Is it narcissism? Is it solipsism? But also, there's a recurring thing, there's a motif, and a, maybe a metaphor, however you want to look at it, throughout the book of people's faces, their sensory input zones, being dulled down. People are blinded, people need glasses, there's a butler whose nose is ruined. Caraway gives an undue amount of attention to the shapes and the contours of people's mouths. There's reference to deaf people, people who speak too softly. So the, the organs of sensory input are important throughout the book. So the next sentence, this responsiveness of Gatsby's, this responsiveness had nothing to do with that flabby impressionability which is dignified under the name of the creative temperament. Now that sentence is wordy and it's bad and it should have been cut out of the book, but the reason it wasn't is because F. Scott Fitzgerald was in his 20s and he was in love with his own writing. So yes, by all means, say that this is one of the great American novels, if not THE great American novel. It is almost unquestionably a fucking masterpiece. It's brilliant, but it's not flawless. And if you read The Great Gatsby or you've read it in the past and you made the determination that you don't like it, that's fine. Because I, I will back you up here as someone who has read this fucking thing five times this past year. Also listen to the audiobook read by, narrated by Jake Gyllenhaal, which is surprisingly good. I didn't like it in the beginning because he's like super monotone, sounds very dead, but then like, it, it fits, man. It fits the material. All right, back to it. The thing about Gatsby he's saying was, he had an extraordinary gift for hope, a romantic readiness such as I have never found in any other person and which it is not likely I shall ever find again. No, Gatsby turned out all right at the end. It is what preyed on Gatsby. 
What foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. So first he says, Gatsby had like an unprecedented ability to feel hope. But if you look through, and there's troves of these online, digitized periodicals from the 1920s, 1922 through like 1928, you're gonna start to see that self-help was exploding. Every periodical, whether it's a newspaper or a magazine or a tabloid, they all had advertisements for like, write in and we will send you a booklet and this booklet will teach you how to, how to grow a bigger penis or how to speak in front of a crowd or how to please your husband or clean your house or, or dress better. There was this obsessive, like the great American hero, even at the end of the First World War, the great American hero was the businessman, the idea of the self-made millionaire. And now, because of like the rampant advances of communication technology with radio and the telephone and mass printing of huge numbers of newspapers and magazines, people were able to communicate their vulnerabilities and their ambitions. But more importantly, advertisers were able to identify your insecurities and prey upon them. This was the decade when a product named Listerine came out and invented an illness called halitosis. Halitosis is not real. They said halitosis was a kind of bacterial infection that caused bad breath. Now, does Listerine work? Like at killing bad breath, killing bacteria? Yes, it does. But it invented an illness and it made people really insecure about maybe having that illness and not knowing it. And so they bought a lot of Listerine. So the 1920s, is really when the 20th century as we know it, the very industrialized, very media-saturated 20th century, is born. In the same way that people, it's now a cliche to say this, but that the 1960s didn't start until 1968. You know, everything before that was kind of the 1950s part two. The reason that Jay Gatsby is a sort of model American figure is because, yeah, he grabbed, picked himself up by his bootstraps, he didn't have much money, and he made himself very wealthy. But also, he made himself wealthy with crime. He's, he's a bootlegger. But also, that American thing of hope, I'm gonna send out for this booklet, or this elixir that's going to cure my bad breath or regrow my hair. That shit was fucking rampant. Then the last line is even more important because he says, Gatsby turned out all right in the end. It is what preyed on Gatsby. What foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. Now, when he talks about the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men, there is a 21st century term that encapsulates what he's talking about. It's called post-nut clarity. Maybe you've experienced this, you're watching porn, you're very into it, and then after you have your orgasm and like the adrenaline comes down and you're kind of bobbing, you're afloat in endorphins, like the, the material is still on the screen in front of you and suddenly you're repulsed, not only with what you're looking at, but by the fact that it elicited like a really, really sexual response from you. The abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men. That's kind of like, oh yeah, we're fucking and it's great. And then after that, your abortive sorrow, your short-winded elation, and then you come down from it and you realize, oh my God, I'm in bed with this dude and now he's gonna fucking try to confess something sentimental to me. And then you, he just pretends to be asleep to avoid it. But also he describes of Gatsby, what foul dust floated in the wake of his dreams. Now, there is some irony there, wake 
and the word wake and then the word dream. And something to take into consideration here is that in the 1920s, the larger culture was starting to embrace the theories of Sigmund Freud, as well as Einstein, and that's what led to modernism, was a kind of exploration of the mind, the domestication of like psychological jargon, the subconscious uh, projection, shit like that. Also, what foul dust floated in the wake of Gatsby's dreams it, that that phrase in the wake now awake is the the ceremony that is held after you've died but awake is also the thing that you trail behind you when you're swimming in a body of water so there's two kinds of wake and also Jay Gatsby at the end of this book is going to be murdered while floating in a body of water. So we're getting post-nut clarity, we're getting ocean puns, we're getting like contradictory self-negating remarks. All right, there's a section break there. We're only on page two. I was gonna do the first chapter, but I've been talking, my, the recording right now is almost at 40 minutes. I'm gonna edit this down, but I gotta stop. Also, it's Christmas Eve. I'm gonna lose my voice and I gotta go somewhere. Anyways, thank you for listening. This'll be a fucking journey if I fucking continue. If this is really boring and you don't want to hear any more of this, let me know. But I do feel obliged because, like, I think this is a great book, but it took me a long time and a lot of effort to realize how great it is. And I do think, like, if I can't convince you that this is a really good book, I do think, like, especially if you're 16, 17, and you're having to read this in class for the first time, and you don't understand why the fuck you have to, why your teacher isn't giving you a book that's, like, way more modern and like surface level relatable. I feel like my understanding and my enjoyment of this book was pretty hard earned and I eh, feels incumbent on me to share it or at least try to anyways. Hope your Christmas Eve is going well. This has been fun. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time.